0: Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of John. John chapter 16. We will read the first 16 verses. John chapter 16, the first 16 verses. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more, of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He shall... He will show you things to come. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are Mine. Therefore said I that He shall take of Mine and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see Me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see Me, because I go to the Father. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 20. This is found in the back of our blue songbooks, after all the songs, on page 12, practice of our congregation to use the Heidelberg Catechism as a guide to help us understand the basic truths of Scripture. This morning we consider Lord's Day 20, found on page 12 in the back of our Psalters. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, that He is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that He has also given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all His benefits, and that He may comfort me and abide with me forever. As with most every catechism, Our Heidelberg Catechism treats four main topics. The Apostles' Creed, the Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And we are still considering the first of those four main topics, namely the Apostles' Creed. We have been going line by line through the Apostles' Creed, that summary of the Christian faith, to have a clear understanding of Of what it is we believe and confess as Christians. But now within the Apostles' Creed and the Catechism's explanation of it, we come to a new subsection. For the catechism has taught us that the Apostles' Creed can be divided into three main sections. The first concerning God the Father and our creation. The second concerning God the Son and our redemption. And the third concerning God the Spirit and our sanctification. We have finished that middle subsection of God the Son and our redemption. And now we begin that third subsection of God the Spirit and our sanctification. And for that reason, it's the Spirit who stands on the foreground in question answer 20. Because a part of what we confess and believe as Christians in the Apostles' Creed is that we believe in the Holy Ghost. That is, in the Holy Spirit. And now this Lord's Day asks, what is it you believe about Him? Question 53, what dost thou believe concerning the Spirit and concerning the Holy Ghost? And then what follows is the Catechism's explanation. But now to help us in understanding what we believe concerning the Holy Spirit, we turn to Christ's own instruction that He gave concerning the Spirit, that last night that He was with His disciples. We turn to John chapter 16, really John 14 through 16. And we do so in spite of the fact that we recently used this same passage to consider the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it, because it contains instruction about his departure, but there the focus is on Christ and him leaving. Now we come back to these three chapters, chapters 14 through 16, to see what they have to teach us about the spirit of Jesus Christ, about his identity, that he's our comforter, that he's the spirit of truth, about his coming to us, the fact that he's sent to us, but that he, he willingly comes. And also His work. Especially that work to teach us. To show us our Savior Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's consider Lord's Day 20 using as our theme, the coming, the Comforter come unto us. The Comforter come unto us. First, we'll look at His identity. Second, we will look at His coming. And third, His work. The Comforter come unto us. His identity. His coming and His work. And I'll note that whereas normally the first point of the sermon is the longest and they get progressively shorter, we will have a relatively short first point so that we have more time for the second and the third. Shall of God, put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. You are gathered together in that upper room in Jerusalem. You have celebrated the last Passover and now your Savior is giving you important instruction there in that upper room. But the problem is that so much of what He has had to say is quite troubling. Because during supper, Jesus told you that one of you, one of the twelve, was about to betray Him. And then, the news got worse because He said again and again and again, I'm leaving. I'm departing. I'm going to be with the Father. Yet a little while, you have Me with Me. You will have Me with you. And then I will be gone. And then to top it off, he's been telling you about all the persecution you're going to face. How the world is going to turn on you. How the world will hate you. So that he says what he does in chapter 16, verse 2, "...they shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service." Now, if you were a disciple sitting in that room, how do you think you would take all of this? How would you be feeling? No doubt, we would be troubled, frightened, and full of sorrow. And that is indeed exactly how the disciples felt. It's clear from what Jesus says in verse 6, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Elsewhere He says, let not your heart be troubled, because they were in fact troubled. They were discouraged by all that Jesus Christ was telling them. But notably, the effect of His words on the disciples was not lost on Jesus Christ. He could see it. After all, verse 6 that we just read, sorrow hath filled your heart, is Jesus Christ speaking directly to His disciples. He he understood the impact of His words. And in light of that, he, He addresses their fears, their sorrow. And He does that first of all by explaining to them the reasons why He is telling them all of this seemingly bad news he does that first of all in chapter sixteen, verse one. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended, my disciples, I'm telling you all this, lest you have been entertaining the false notion that it's going to be easy for you. I'm telling you all this so that you're not caught off guard when the suffering and the hardships come. so that you're not offended at Me or My doctrine, so that you do not fall away. But then He gives him further explanation in verse 4, but these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them My disciples. I'm telling you this so that you see My deity, so that you see My omniscience. That I was able to tell you what was going to happen before it ever happened. He seeks to address their fear and their sorrow, in part by telling them, giving them an explanation for why he's telling them all these things. But that's not the main way. The main way he addresses their fear and their sorrow is by promising that he will send. A comforter. The Spirit. And that's the promise that he makes five times throughout these three chapters of Scripture John 14 through 16. And it's worth seeing all five of them because we will be drawing from all five of them during the course of the sermon. It begins in chapter 14, verse 16. Chapter 14, verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another. Comforter, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Next, He makes reiterates His promise in chapter 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And then again in chapter 15, verse 26. 15, verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. And now in chapter 16 that we read, verse 7, Nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And then finally, chapter 16, verse 13, how be it when he the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truth. 5 times Jesus promises to his disciples I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send you the holy spirit. He reiterates it again and again and again. This is quite a promise. So much so that one theologian said, whilst Christ was in the world with His disciples, He made them no greater promise. End quote. There's no greater promise of Jesus Christ than this one. If we are ever going to believe that, we must first know something about the identity Of this spirit, he is the third person of the Trinity, and that means, on the one hand, he is a distinct person within the Trinity. That he is a person comes out from the instruction found in this passage. For example, in John 16, verse 13, we read, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. So notice, some of the verbs that are being attributed to the Spirit. He, he guides, he hears, he speaks. Well, that means he's a person. He's not just a force. He's not just some power. But he he's a person. And what is more, he's a, a distinct person within the Trinity. Distinct from the Father and the Son. He's not just a different mode of the Father. He's not just a different face of the Son, but He's a a distinct person. And that's clear from chapter 15, verse 26, for example. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. Notice you have reference to all three persons of the Trinity there. And the three persons are interacting with each other and the Father and the Son are sending the Spirit, and that means he's distinct from the Father and the Son, because while of our own will, we can go to some place, we don't ever send ourselves anywhere. The fact that he's being sent means he's clearly a distinct person within the Trinity. But at the very same time, he's also fully God. That comes out from a passage like Acts chapter 5, where Peter equates lying to the Holy Spirit with lying to God Himself. How can he do that? Because the Spirit is God Himself. And thus the Catechism teaches what it does about the Spirit. When in Lord's Day 20 we ask, What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? the Catechism says, First, that He is true and co eternal God with the Father and the Son. In other words, the Spirit is not somehow of a lower rank within the Trinity. He's not inferior to the Father or the Son. He... But instead, He's co-equal with them. Co-eternal. He has the same divine essence so that whatever attributes you apply to the Father or to the Son, you can apply them equally to the Spirit. And in fact, Scripture itself does that taking divine attributes and applying them to the Spirit, teaching us He is true and co-eternal God. So the Spirit here is the third person of the Trinity. But notably, when Jesus Christ promises us the Spirit, He gives us other names for the Spirit. First, He calls the Spirit the Comforter. He does that four different times. For example, to use one example, in chapter 16, verse 7, we read, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. The Spirit is our Comforter. That means, to use the original Greek, He is our Paraclete. The Paraclete is one who comes alongside of another to help that person. So that the idea is the Spirit is the one who draws near to us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us the aid that we stand in need of. And a part of that help that the Spirit gives is that He comforts us. There's good reason that the King James translates this the way it does, as the comforter. Because a part of His work is that He gives to us that rest, that contentedness, that peace within our souls in spite of all the trouble and difficulty around us by impressing upon us that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. Some great good that outweighs all of the troubles, all of the difficulties. The Spirit is our Comforter. But in addition to referring to the Spirit as our Comforter, Jesus Christ also speaks of Him as the Spirit of Truth. He does that in chapter 14, verse 17, but then again also in 15, verse 26. 15, verse 26 But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth. And now that the Spirit is the Spirit of Truth includes that as God, He is truth. Because we already established He is God, and God is the God of truth, and therefore, truth is a part of the very being, the very essence of the Spirit. That idea is included, but that's not the main point. For the main point, when Jesus refers to Him as the Spirit of truth, is that He's the One who reveals truth. He's the One who communicates truth to us. which really is to say that He's the one who reveals Jesus Christ. Because the first time that Jesus refers to Him as the Spirit of Truth is in chapter 14, verse 17. Just a few verses after, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is truth, and then a few verses later He says, There's this Spirit who reveals truth so that the point is the Spirit is the one who reveals Christ unto us who who shines the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And in that we have a hint as to how He comforts us. But we'll have more to say about that later in the third point. So it's this Spirit, the third Person of the Trinity, the Comforter, the Spirit of truth that Jesus Christ promised to His disciples before He was about to depart. And they needed this promise. Because He was indeed leaving. This is Thursday night of the Passion Week. Which means He's about to be crucified. His body is going to be buried. He will rise again. But then even after having risen from the dead, He will leave this earth and ascend up into heaven. And knowing the impact of that upon His disciples, seeing their sorrow, their fear, Jesus makes this promise again and again and again. He tells them in chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. Notice how He begins. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. I, the One who loves you, the One who cares for you, the One who is about to lay down His life for you, these are My dying words so that you might believe. I who am truth. And who only ever speak the truth. I make this promise. I'm going to send you another Comforter. The Spirit to come and to be with you to dwell in your hearts. And Jesus kept that promise. For the Spirit is indeed come unto us. And that's part of the teaching of the catechism. Catechism says, What believest thou concerning the Holy Ghost? Secondly, that He is also given Me. As God's children, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And in that connection, we want to consider the coming of this Comforter. We've talked about His identity, now His coming. And regarding His coming, we need to see that He comes both as one who is sent, and at the same time, He comes of His own will, of His own accord. First, the Spirit comes as one who is sent. And specifically, this, these chapters make clear that He is sent from the Father through the Son. And that comes out when we look at the progression that's found in those five different passages that all speak of this promise of the spirit. We will see that Jesus Christ very slowly, very carefully reveals this truth concerning the coming of the spirit to his people. It starts with chapter 14 verse 20 verse 16. Chapter 14 verse 16. There we read I will pray the Father, and He, the Father, shall give you another Comforter. So notice, Christ starts with, it's the Father who's going to send you the Holy Spirit. And this is going to happen at Christ's request. He says, I will pray the Father. I'm going to petition God, but then it's going to be the Father who sends you this Spirit. That's where Christ starts. But then He adds a little bit. In chapter 14, verse 26, when He says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send, in My name. And now He's still being consistent. It's the Father who's going to send Him to you. But He adds those words, in My name, which implies that in some sense, Jesus is involved in the sending. Because after all, Jesus came into this world in the the Father's name. That is, the Father is the one who sent Him and now Jesus is saying that the Father is going to send Him in My name, which implies that in some sense, Jesus is involved in the sending. But it's still the Father. And there's the beginning of a progression because then He progresses further and He makes clear to His disciples, I am indeed involved. And that comes out in chapter 15 verse 26 chapter 15 verse 26 but when the comforter is come whom i will send unto you from the father even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the father he shall testify of me you'll notice the, the spirit's still coming from the father it, it starts with him but now jesus christ goes so far as to say i will send them to you. He makes explicit His involvement. And then He takes that one step further in chapter 16, verse 7. Where He speaks of Him, sending Him by His own power, as it were, of His own accord. Chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And now here, there's no... Mention of the Father even. It's just Christ sending the Spirit. And this in connection with His departure so that He's communicating that it's as the ascended Lord that He would send the Spirit. Do you see the progression? He starts with, it's the Father who sends. And He ends with, I'm the One who sends. And if we ask the question, how are we to... Harmonize all of this? How are we to reconcile all of this? The answer is that the Spirit is sent from the Father through the Son. It starts with the Father. Because as our Belgian confession rightly teaches us, the Father is the beginning, the cause, the origin of all things visible and invisible. And even within the Trinity, it's the Father who begets the Son and it's the, Fa- and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And thus, Jesus Christ rightly starts with the Father. The Father sends. But at the very same time, there's a sense in which the Son sends because as the due reward for His perfect obedience to the will of the Father, the Father gave to the Son the Spirit. So that the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He, he gave to the Son the right to, to send forth the Spirit as His own. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. That's what He did at Pentecost when He poured out the Spirit upon the church. And that's what He does in the hearts and lives of each one of us. He sends His own Spirit to give us new life to unite us to the Son. And all of this is further confirmed that it's the Spirit sent from the Father through the Son by a passage such as Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, this is Peter talking about Jesus Christ. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He has shed forth this, that is, the Spirit. So, The Son received of the Father the promise and then the Son shed forth the Spirit. He poured out the Spirit. Now the fact that the Son is the One who does this really serves to magnify our Savior. This is a part of His exaltation, His glory. That the man Jesus Christ was authorized, as it were, given the right to send the Spirit as His own. Really, this is more glorious than being raised to that position of sitting at God's right hand as ruler over everything. He now sends the Spirit from that position. This is something that magnifies the Son. But does it not also... Underscore His love and His care for the church? It does. For He has not left us comfortless. That was his, Those were His words to His disciples in chapter 14, verse 18. Chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. And literally, He's saying, I will not leave you as orphans. Orphans, children who have lost both their parents and who must face by themselves this big and often cruel world without the leadership, the care, the assistance, the guidance of their parents. Jesus Christ has not left us as orphans. But He Himself has come to us through His own Spirit. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And He says that immediately after telling them that the Spirit would come so that the point is that Christ Himself comes to us through the Spirit. And So we see His love. We see His care for the church. Now if you are like me, when you think about the Spirit being given to us and coming to us, this is how you think about it. What we've just explained, that the Spirit comes as the One who is sent from the Father through the Son. And we've just made very clear that it's good and proper for us to think of the Spirit as the One who is sent. But if we stop there, we're missing part of the picture. Because it's not just that He sent, but in the second place, the Spirit comes of His own will, of His own accord. And that comes out, for example, in chapter 16, verse 7. When we really dig into the passage, chapter 16, verse 7, we read this, "...nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away." For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So the, the second half of that is Him saying, I will send him unto you. But before that, He said, If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But we know He did go away, which means the Comforter did come. And notice then that in that statement, it's the Spirit... Who's the subject? The Comforter will come or came from our perspective. He does this himself, and that's also that also comes out in chapter fourteen, verses sixteen and seventeen, where again we see the the Spirit is the, the subject. He he's involved in this. Chapter fourteen, verse. 16 he shall give you another comforter and he the spirit may abide with you forever the spirit abides chapter verse 17 even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and he shall be in you and what all of this is teaching us is that the spirit came willingly Of His own accord. Yes, He's sent. But if we just leave it at He's sent, well, we could be left with the wrong impression that He's sent like a soldier sent into the front lines of a a battle. Reluctantly. Begrudgingly. Wishing it were not so. But that's not the case. For he came willingly. He wanted this too. He himself delights in coming. He came voluntarily. And it's when we see this that we can then understand how for the Spirit to be sent in no way makes him inferior. For us, that's often the case. If someone is being sent by another, well, usually. It's because He's of a lower rank. It's the the higher official who who sends another on the behalf. So if you're the one being sent, it means you have some boss over you in a position above you. But that's not the case with the Spirit. He came of His own accord. And He's the one who comes because it's in harmony with His distinct properties as the third person of the Trinity for Him to come because the Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father to the Son and from the Father from the Son to the Father. And therefore, it's in harmony with that that He then proceeds from them to us. And so the fact that He's sent in no way makes Him inferior. He's not subordinate to the Father or to the Son. He's not of a lower rank. But now all of that said, that's not the main reason we bring this up. We're making the point that the Spirit came willingly. He wanted this. He came of His own accord. And that does help us to understand why He's not inferior as the One who sent. But the main reason to bring this up is to see His condescending love for us. For remember whom we're talking about here. This is the one who is true and co eternal God. He is the Holy Ghost, exalted above all, free from every sin and imperfection, morally perfect. And to whom did He come? Sinners. Vile, corrupt, perverse, froward, sinners who would repay this kindness By provoking Him. Offending Him. And vexing Him. And yet He came. Willingly. Not in ignorance. Not knowing what He was getting Himself into and then surprised while they're much more sinful than I ever thought. But He came knowing full good and well what He was getting Himself into. Knowing what we are and what we would do. Knowing that we would grieve Him. That we would quench His motions working within us. That we would defile His temple. Child of God, you see His condescending love. That He came. And not just that He came, but that He remains. That He continues to abide with us though we sin again and again and again. And not only that He remains, but that He continues to do us good. He continues His saving work, His, his gracious work upon us. And all of it out of a steadfast love that never wavers. Yes, we grieve Him. But His love remains steadfast. And now what price shall we put on that love? How are we going to esteem such a condescending love for us who are sinners? Shall we continue to grieve Him? by our willful sin and disobedience? Shall we continue to quench the motions of His work within us? Shall we defile the temple that He has made His own? let our response instead be to give thanks for this tremendous gift. And knowing His condescending love for us, let that be a part of our motivation to then serve our God out of gratitude, out of love for Him. And let that be all the more true when we consider not just His willingness to come, but also the work that He performs as the One who has come. Because He does indeed work within us. And the Spirit performs many different works, but they all fit under one overarching category. Namely, that He applies that which Christ has earned. The catechism puts it this way. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? And the secondly is that He's also given to me, we've explained that, to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all His benefits. So, He makes us to share in all that Christ has earned, all that Christ has accomplished. That's the the umbrella under which all of His other works are found. And there are indeed many different aspects of that one overarching work. His work includes that He sanctifies us. He makes us holy even as God is holy. His work includes that He sheds the love of God for us abroad in our hearts. His work includes that He seals us unto the day of our redemption. But now, in one point of a sermon, we do not have time to go through all the different works of the Spirit. Instead, we will limit ourselves to one. The One that stands on the foreground in John 14-16. through Namely, He teaches us. That's the work that Jesus Christ especially ascribes to the Spirit in these chapters. For example, in chapter 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said of you. And then again in chapter 16, verse 13. howbeit, when the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth. Guiding into truth is a part of His work as teaching. The Spirit teaches us. He does that by illuminating us. Especially illuminating our minds so that He takes us who were dead sinners and He renews our minds that were previously in darkness and gives us light. But He not only illuminates us, but He illuminates God's Word. He he shines a light upon the Word so that the words that we could never see, that we were blind to their true meaning and their significance... He opens our eyes. He he sheds a light on the Scriptures itself so that we are able to understand them. That's His teaching. And in His teaching, He is taking that Word and applying it. He's making it effectual to to us. He teaches. But now it's not just that He teaches, it's about whom He teaches us. Jesus Christ. That too stands out in these chapters. He points us to our Savior, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-six. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance. What things? Whatsoever I have said unto you, He's going to help us remember what Christ Himself has taught us. And that has the primary application is to the disciples, and they're writing down the words of Jesus Christ and the work of inspiration by the Spirit, but there's application to us that He helps us to remember the words of our Savior. He points us back to the Scriptures and to our Savior in that way. Same idea is expressed in chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. It's going to testify of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's His work as teacher. And then again in chapter 16, verse 14, He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine and shall show it unto you. He's going to receive the revelation concerning Myself, and He's going to declare it. He's going to show that to you so that the point is that the work of the Spirit is to teach us about our Savior. To set before us Christ and Him crucified. That's the content of His teaching. And all that serves the glory of Christ. And now it's by doing this, by teaching us about Christ and pointing us ever to our Savior, it's by this that He then comforts us. We hinted at that in the first point of the sermon. He is the comforter. And how does He comfort us? By pointing us to our Savior. And that comes out, for example, in chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. Chapter 14, verse 26 ends with, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And then, verse 27, Jesus immediately follows that up with, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And now we would be wrong to suppose that there's a hard stop between verse 26 and verse 27. Because the reality is that those verses are intimately connected. And the point is that Christ gives us peace by the work of the Spirit who points us to Jesus Christ. So that it's by His teaching us that He works this peace. That He gives us the comfort that we stand in need of. And on the one hand, this... Reminds us that our comfort is found in Jesus Christ. The Hatterberg Catechism is correct when it says that my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He is the heart and the center of my comfort. Comfort is treasured up in Jesus Christ. But now on the other hand, and at the very same time, it's the Spirit's work to produce that comfort in us. Because we can read all about Jesus Christ, we can go over His words again and again and again, but those words by themselves are completely powerless. How many times have we we gone to the Scriptures when we're, we're down, we're struggling, and we read God's Word, but yet we're still discouraged. We're still afraid. We're still troubled. The words by themselves are powerless. It's the Spirit that takes the truth concerning Jesus Christ and applies it to our hearts, teaches us about our Savior in an effectual manner. It's on account of that work that we then have comfort. That rest, that peace, that contentedness in the the midst of all the troubles, in the midst of all the difficulties, knowing I have some good that far outweighs all of the difficulties. The Spirit does that. And does this not once again underscore the Spirit's own love for us? Because the implication of everything that we've said is that whatever rest, peace, joy, comfort we have at any time, by any means, is due to the work of the Spirit. And that's so wonderful because if left to ourselves to conjure up this this joy, this happiness, this contentment, it would never happen. Especially in times of great difficulty. When the heavens above appear black. When the earth beneath is trembling. And when the trials out in front of us are looming especially ominously. In such times, we are ready to faint. Left to ourselves, our hearts would be full of sorrow. We would be troubled and frightened. But what happens sometimes, child of God, Is it not your experience that at times in the midst of the difficulties that some word concerning our Savior will all of a sudden penetrate into the very depths of our heart with a conquering, power and an endearing strength? And there's once again comfort so that by faith we grab hold of that word, we embrace it, And we find the consolation we're looking for. When that happens, the explanation is not, well, I finally got a hold of myself. But the explanation is the Spirit work that in me. He's the One who took that Word, who made that Word effectual. He's the One who gives us a comfort that does not depend on our outward circumstances. That does not depend on our inward disposition or frame of mind. And the key is that by faith we take notice of this. And that we recognize this so that any time there is that comfort, that joy, that contentedness, that consolation, that peace within us, by faith we step back and we say, This is the Spirit's work. He is the Comforter, the God of consolation. I know that there's no joy, no peace, no hope, no comfort, but that He works it, that He gives it, that He produces it within us. That's what we must see by faith. And when we recognize that by faith, Consider the endearing effect of that. When we understand that the Spirit worked this in me, then the last thing I want to do is go on grieving Him by my sin. The last thing I want to do is quench any motions of His work within me. The last thing I want to do is defile His temple. But instead, I want to serve Him. And it's when we see His work that then we too are ready to conclude with that theologian of old who said of all the promises that Christ made while He was with His disciples, there is no greater promise than this one. Congregation, let us give thanks to our God for the gift of the Spirit. And let us pray that He would evermore work powerfully within our hearts to help us and to comfort us. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we pray that Thou will apply it unto our hearts And give us peace. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.